Never gets old declaring that the Lord is our salvation, right? We need that reminder, and that is our hope and what we rest in as followers of Christ. Well, as we come to the, the holy word of God this morning, let's bow together in asking the Lord's assistance. Our Father, we ask that you would help us this morning, teach us what we need to learn, that you convict us where we are sinning, and that you would give us transformation where we need change. Father, we are your humble servants. We are coming before your word, the declaration of the King, and we want to hear it rightly and live it out correctly. We ask for your Spirit's help to do that. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, as you well know, relationships can be messy, can they not? We know that we need them. We love relationships. We love people. And yet, it's in the midst of relationship that we can sometimes feel the worst pain and we can get hurt the most. I thought this was humorously illustrated by a forest folktale from northern Canada that says about up there in the cold northern wilderness, there were two porcupines huddled together to get warm. But as they did so, their quills pricked each other, and so they quickly scuttled apart. As they were there apart, they, before long, they started shivering and realized they needed to get sidled right back close to one another again. Of course, it wasn't long before they got jabbed again from each other. Same story, same ending. They needed each other, but they kept needling each other in the process. And in a funny way, this is an apt illustration of our relationships. The very people that we need and we love can also be the ones that wound us as well. The last few weeks, we've been looking at one particular kind of relationship. That is the relationship of a Christian to his enemies. And we saw there that Jesus calls us to love our enemies. When we're persecuted for our faith, we're, we are to respond with such love and generosity that it leaves people in the world scratching their heads. How could they respond that way? And as we do this, Jesus says we're going to receive favor from the Lord. We're going to receive reward from God that's awaiting us in heaven. And on top of all of this, we put God on display for the world to see. And we live with this kind of love. Well, the next section, the section before us this morning, Jesus then pivots to look at relationships more broadly, relationships more generally. And he wants us to think about how we treat one another. How do you and I treat the people in our lives? And as we're going to see, he wants us to be critical, but not critical of others. He wants us to be critical of ourselves. Something easier said than done, right? So, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 6 if you're not there already. Luke chapter 6, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can use the Pew Bible directly in front of you, and you can find this on page 1025. Luke chapter 6, we'll be beginning in verse 37. The passage previous that we finished last week ends with verse 36 that says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And as we looked at, this is somewhat of a summary statement of what has 
already come, that he called us to love our enemies, and then he wraps it up by saying, be merciful as uh, your father is merciful. But it's also a pivot statement that begins to look at the verses that we're going to look at this morning. That just as the father is merciful, and precisely because the father is merciful to you, so you need to be merciful to the people in your lives. And that's where Jesus goes. Follow along as I read verses 37 through 42. Jesus continues, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. It's in this passage, Jesus, again, is talking about different kinds of relationships. And so I've summarized the lessons here under three relational lessons, three relational lessons that we need to learn so that we would faithfully follow Jesus. If we're going to represent Christ, if we're going to be his disciples, which this sermon is speaking to those who would be his disciples, then we must learn the lessons that he has for us here in this passage, particularly three relational lessons. Now, the first and the last lesson, one and three, speak to our relationships generally, and the second one, speak to our relationship to teachers, which is kind of a a funny mix-up in the midst of these other things, but... It's a unique grouping of verses, but we're going to see valuable lessons that Jesus gives us in them. So let's look first at the first relational lesson that we see in these verses, in verses 37 and 38. The first relational lesson is this. To be blessed abundantly, do not condemn. To be blessed abundantly, if you want to be blessed abundantly, then do not condemn. Do not judge. Verses 37 and the beginning part of 38. Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Now, these verses can initially come across as somewhat obscure, but I believe it will make sense as we go through them. Here, he gives us four commands and four results of those commands. And these commands all point towards one general disposition that Jesus wants his disciples to have towards other people. You'll notice that two of the commands are negative. They have a do not flavor. And two are positive. On the one hand, we must not judge or condemn. On the other, we must forgive and give. And in all of this, again, I think these are all pointing towards one general disposition that he wants us to walk with humility towards others, and to treat others mercifully. Now, the judging and the condemning that Jesus prohibits is not the simple act of pointing out sin. I want to say that out at the front end. That when Jesus says, judge not or condemn not, 
He's not saying you cannot point out sin in somebody else or you can't hold anyone accountable. That's not what he's saying. In other words, it's not disobeying this command to lovingly address sin in a brother or sister's life. And yet, is this not, combined with the parallel in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, a favorite verse of unbelievers to throw in our face when we try to point out what the Bible says about certain behaviors and certain sins, and they say, hey, don't judge. And they don't know the context. They don't know what it's talking about. They just don't like the feeling of being judged, and so they throw that, throw that verse back in our face. And what they mean by that is, don't tell me about my sin. Don't tell me that I'm in sin. They don't want their behavior held up against any standard of righteousness or holiness, and so in their defense, they throw this verse back at us. But I believe this is a wrong understanding of this verse. You see, the Bible is full of prophets and teachers and apostles, and even Jesus himself, who calls out the sin of people. In fact, we're called to warn and admonish one another. And this means we point out where we are failing to live according to God's word. In fact, later on in this passage, Jesus talks about seeing a speck in somebody else's eye. And he doesn't denounce us and say, don't look for specks. He just wants us to go about it the right way. So the idea of seeing sin in someone else's life is not unbiblical. But there's a right way to go about it. So then what does Jesus' words mean here? What does it mean to judge not, to condemn not? Well, the judging Jesus speaks of here. I believe, is that of a self-righteous moralist. Someone that believes that they have the upper hand morally. They're living their life well. They're being obedient. They are righteous. And they are looking down on those who aren't measuring up to the standard that they themselves have put into their life. One commentator described it this way. He said, this refers to a judgmental attitude that looks down on others and enjoys condemning them with an attitude of superiority. It is being critical of others and enjoying it. Recognizing that you have the higher level. And so this kind of attitude seeks to hold people down in guilt and condemnation with never a thought of encouraging them to move back towards God. It's a pointing out of sin but giving them no hope. It's a letting them wallow in their guilt and loving to force that position upon them so that they feel from you that condemnation and that judgment and that they can't move under the weight of that judgment and you enjoy holding them there. We all know how we can gain those attitudes, can we not? That feeling that we just want to, okay, not forever, but just for a little bit longer. Now this judging, it could be given to the person directly. Some of us are very uh, uh, verbal judgers and we can just say what's on our mind and, and what we see and call it out and we judge the person in the moment. We let them know what we're thinking. Some of us like to keep it to ourselves and our minds are full of judgments as we scan and go throughout our day. We see people all around us and we consider ourselves better and morally superior to the people that we see around us. Others can find the temptation to begin to spread their thoughts of judgment, not to the person themselves, but to others, which is known as gossip. And so we begin to speak about, hey, did you see so-and-so and what they did? And did you know that they're doing this? And it begins to spread as these judgments are spoken. 
And so Jesus here commands us to not act this way, to not be critical of others in this morally superior way. We should not have critical spirits towards fellow believers or even those outside the faith. We should not be characterized as those who are self-righteous in their stance. Why? Well, Jesus says, judge not and you will not be judged. You see, there's a connection between the way that we live and the way that we judge and the way it's going to come back to us. I believe there's a sense in which that may happen in this life and the way that Jesus, uh, the Lord treats us in this life and, and also an eschatological, uh, an end times view of how we'll be judged and treated as well. This means that God will condemn us for our lack of love and mercy shown to others. But Jesus says, don't judge in this way, and you're not going to face this judgment or condemnation. In other words, Jesus is promising people that people cannot get away with unloving condemnation of others. There will be consequences for living this sort of way. God is watching, and he will ultimately return it back upon the person's head. So this prompts us to ask, right, am I, am I tempted to judge or to condemn to put people under these, these self-righteous standards? Where are you tempted to judge people wrongly? Where do you tend to look down on others? Where are you tempted to think of yourself as morally superior? And friends, there are landmines everywhere in this world and even in the Christian life and in the church for us to take these sorts of positions. We have got to be on the lookout. Maybe your temptation is to judge by appearances and think yourself morally superior. Could be possessions that people have. Look down on people based upon whether they have something really nice or whether they somehow have something not really nice. <laughs> Maybe it's clothing and style. Maybe it's body type. Maybe you're tempted to judge people based upon behaviors that you think are inappropriate. Again, the classics, right? Drinking, alcohol, smoking, getting tattoos, things that have culturally been taboo. Do you tend to be, think of yourself morally superior in your entertainment choices? Thinking, looking down on people that watch different shows than you, that watch different movies than you, Watch more movies than you. Maybe you're tempted to, to be morally superior and judgmental in terms of Bible knowledge and theology. You know a lot about the scriptures. You know a lot about what the Bible says and you can talk about it. And you look down on those who can't. They can't formulate an opinion or talk about what the Bible says in a certain area. We know the Bible puffs up or the knowledge puffs up. Or how about this? Maybe you're tempted to be morally superior and judgmental in terms of parenting. Again, talk about a, line, a landmine field. You judge based upon the behavior of other people's children, on how they, other people correct their children, on whether they vaccinate their children, on whether they nurse or bottle feed their children, and the list can go on and on and on of things that we can tend to judge each other by and think ourselves morally superior for what we do and put other people down and judge them for what they do. And friends, this is just a sampling. I, I mean, this is just, these are broad categories, and you could drill into each one of these things. 
but we can see how many ways there are for us to be judgmental, for us to be critical of others and to put other people down. And yet it is a sin and it is foolishness to do so. Jesus wants us to be merciful. He wants us to be love, act in love towards others. And so love obligates us to treat our brother and sister with gentleness and with mercy. But Jesus here prohibits us from even having that thought of judgment in our head, to repent of that and turn from it when we even think the thought of judgment and condemnation, to not allow that pride and that sort of judgmentalism to even take root within our souls. We've got to be doing the work when the, the seed begins to sprout, not wait till it's full grown. You see, we, in our judgment, can even love pointing out to other people the sin that they're in, the mud that they're standing in, and we don't even want to help them. We just point it out to them and love to relish in the fact that they're sitting in this, in this filth and that they're, that they're living this sort of way that's, that's so wrong, and we, by pointing that out, we feel better about ourselves because we're not in that mess. It's an, this attitude that he con Jesus condemns here is an attitude that doesn't want to help anybody. Again, this doesn't express mercy. This doesn't express compassion, especially for those who, who are brothers and sisters in Christ. This attitude wants the other person to feel ashamed so that we would feel superior. And so Jesus says to you and to all of us this morning, do not judge, do not condemn, because we will reap what we sow. What we dish out in sinful judging will come back to us. But Jesus further describes the attitude we should have with two positive commands. So don't judge, don't condemn, and then he adds on to that by saying that we need to forgive and we need to give. And the word translated forgiving here is a word that in its basic meaning means to release, means to let go or to release. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the heart of a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, is to release people from the relational debts that they have. This is what we call forgiveness or pardon. We're to be generous as well, he says. We're to forgive and we're to give. Not only to erase the debt, but to shower blessing upon the other person as well. Looking to give unto them. So how does this play out? How does this sort of attitude that Jesus is calling for play out practically? Well, let's take an example. Let's say... Husbands, that your wife has messed up in some way or even sinned against you, and she said some things that are hurtful to you. There are two ways to respond. One way is the way Jesus is condemning or denouncing, and the other way is the way he's commanding, right? So let's consider what the wrong way of responding to that situation in light of what Jesus is denouncing here. The wrong way could be uh, to take your hurt feelings and to do this. You, you say, I can't believe that she said that. I would never say something like that. In fact, I only speak kindly to her. I'm only nice to her, and this is what I receive. How could you do that to me, might say. So she says she's sorry. You say you forgive her. But this attitude doesn't let go of it. 
it doesn't release. It continues to bring it up time and again. And you keep it as ammo in your back pocket for when she messes up again and you see, see, you're doing it again. There has never been release from the wrong that she's done. You never can encourage her to repentance and faith in God. You keep her down in a judged state. And by doing so, you keep yourself in a righteous, morally superior state. And this is just an example, but it's so easy for us to do, is it not? So how does Jesus want us to respond? What's the opposite of that? Well, you may point out your hurtfulness, how, how hurt you are to your wife and how she sinned against you. You recognize that you're not above that sin, that you easily could have slipped off the same hurtful words to her. You've hurt her or others with your words in the past, so that's not unheard of. You don't see yourself as morally superior to her, even if you aren't the one sin who has sinned in this instance. And so when she confesses her sin and asks for forgiveness, you release her and you don't hold it against her. You show mercy and love and you don't condemn and you forgive and you give. Friends, this kind of reality can happen with any sort of relationship, can it not? It can happen with our children. Thinking ourselves morally superior over our children rather than recognizing the gospel in our own lives and the ways that we denounce and judge our children and hold them down. It can happen with neighbors, right? The judgment that we have for the people that live across the street or across the fence can build and build. Or our coworkers, things that they do, slights they make, and we judge and we judge and we judge. Jesus says here that we need to be merciful and give to other people and forgive and not be judgmental and critical because that's the way that we're going to receive blessing, overflowing blessing. Seth talked about overflow earlier. This, Jesus wants us to experience the overflow of the blessing from God, and he says that's going to come when we have a merciful and gracious spirit towards others. Look at verse 38. He's, he's going to describe this for us. He says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This illustration, some obscure language here, but is the illustration of someone buying grain in an ancient market. And they come with their container, possibly a pouch that's wrapped around their waist and therefore would sit in their lap, so to speak. And, uh, and they would need to... Uh, as the grain is poured into this pouch or this container, it'd be pressed down. It's going to be shaken to allow that grain to settle into every nook and cranny. And it's going to continue to pour it in to try to fill up as much as they can. And even, he says, to running over. There's going to be get as much as you can and even more than you need. And so this illustration of, of grain going into container, Jesus uses to describe the kind of blessing that the believers receive for living in this sort of merciful a gracious way. Friends, if we want to be abundantly blessed, then we need to treat others with mercy and not to condemn, not to have a critical spirit towards others. He wants to see our cup running over with blessing. And Jesus is saying that that path is to treating, is to refrain from treating people with a, a, a critical spirit. We must be magnanimous with our love and our mercy and our generosity it's beautiful to see, and it's rewarding in the end. 
And let's remember. How do we be merciful in this way? It's by remembering the gospel, right? It's by remembering the mercy that you and I have received, that Jesus, the very one who's speaking these words, is the one who will go to the cross in order to receive the condemnation that we justly deserve, the judgment that we truly deserve. He takes our judgment. He takes our condemnation so that we can be free to be able to give mercy to others and to show love to the people around us. You see, we can't be merciful without Christ. We naturally are condemning people. We naturally love our own righteousness. We love to see the good things that we do and we have a blind eye to the bad things that we do and which Jesus is gonna get to later about the beam and the speck. This is a fundamental nature of humanity is that we love our own righteousness. We think that we're okay. We think that we're good. And friends, this is a fundamental reality of the gospel is that you cannot live the Christian life. You cannot live in the way Jesus is talking about without your heart first being transformed by the mercy of Jesus. You cannot live in a merciful and loving way without you experiencing the mercy of Christ yourself. And that requires you to see all that he has given to you, all that he has done for you upon the cross and to bow in humble submission confessing your sin, your sin that you rightly deserve to be punished for instead to recognize his love and his mercy towards you, to be patient with you, to give you even unto, might I say, this day, March 7th, to be able to repent. He has been patient with you. See his mercy in that. Do not neglect this opportunity to turn to Jesus and find the mercy that he offers to each one who would but repent and humble their heart, renouncing their self-righteousness and instead embracing the righteousness that Jesus gives. It's beautiful and it frees us up to be able to give beautiful mercy to others as well. So the first relational lesson that Jesus gives us in this passage is that for us to be blessed abundantly, we must not condemn. We must not have a critical spirit. The second relational lesson is, number two, to learn truthfully Choose your teachers wisely. The second lesson is to learn truthfully. Choose your teachers wisely. Verses 39 and 40. You can know from the text that there's a change here, right? Verse 39, look at it. He says, he also told them a parable. This is changing directions a little bit. He's, he's, it says he's speaking in a parable or an illustration. He says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? So Jesus is going to get back to interpersonal relationships, but here he addresses the relationship of a disciple and his teacher, the one he's following. Now a disciple, we use that term a lot, a disciple simply means a learner. It's, in the Greek it means mathetes, the word is mathetes, you can hear where we get the word mathematics from, and it just simply means someone who is a learner. And not just a learner mentally in terms of knowledge, not just someone who's getting facts about something, but someone who's learning in terms of, of a mold, an imitation, looking to learn in all aspects of life of how to think, how to feel, and how to behave, how to live. A disciple is learning life from their teacher. And so Jesus begins with an illustration talking about a, a teacher leading someone, particularly a blind teacher. Can a blind man lead a blind man, he asks, to which we know the answer is no. And then he asks, will they not both fall into a pit? And we say, yes, of course. 
It's an obvious illustration, and it's somewhat humorous, right? You're picturing two people that can't see, and one's holding the hand of the other, and they're going along, and, and you're one, you ask them if they know where they're going, and the first one says, yes, yes, I know exactly where I'm going. I'm, I'm following, I'm leaving this person, and, and yet they can't see where they're going. And there's a pit right in front of them. And so Jesus' point is clear. Those who cannot see clearly cannot lead others. Those who cannot see clearly cannot lead others. In fact, those who try to do so are only walking into disaster, not only for themselves, but for those they try to lead. Jesus wants his disciples to realize that they cannot step into leading or teaching position without Jesus himself. They, if they reject Jesus, if they do not, not uh, listen and learn from Jesus, they will not be the right kind of teacher. In fact, they will be a blind guide. Matthew 15, Jesus describes the Pharisees as blind guides. Those who trusted in their self-righteousness and thought that they could lead others into the way of salvation and the way of God, and yet they had no clue where they were going. They spiritually were dead. They needed Jesus to see clearly, and they rejected Christ. And so Jesus here is giving a warning not to follow blind men, not to follow blind teachers. If they arrogantly try to set out on their own, they will be a blind guide. They need Jesus in order to be teachers and leaders. And I think this verse has a similar effect to James chapter 3, verse 1, a verse no doubt you're familiar with, where James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Jesus is pointing out here that those who are guides and leaders have a responsibility to see clearly, to know the truth, to know Christ, and to be able to lead people appropriately. And if not, there's consequences for both. And so this should give people pause about leading others, about teaching others. Of course, we know there are many who become self-appointed teachers who simply think on their own that they know the Word of God and they launch out. You can find them, many of them on the internet who have set up their own ministries separate from the church. There's no one who has given affirmation to their teaching and to their ministry and they are off base. They are not leading people in the truth. They are guilty of being a blind guide. And it is false teaching that can arise from these such self-appointed teachers. The church recognizes and disciples teachers. Teaching and those who lead are to be recognized and trained up within a local church, not simply by self-appointment. Well, Jesus goes on with the disciple-teacher illustration in verse 40. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. A disciple, he says, is not to rise above the level of his discipler. This is simply the, the teacher is going to give the disciple all that he has, right? The teacher is pouring into those students who are under him, and he's seeking to give everything he has, tries to teach them the word of God, teach them how to live life, and he can only give out of what he has, and therefore the student can only receive what the teacher gives him, and therefore the full amount that the, the student can rise to is only the level of the teacher. But Jesus says on top of this, a fully trained disciple is one who is truly like his teacher. A disciple, a student, is fully trained, fully received all that there is when he is like his teacher. In other words, this is the goal of teaching, for the student to be like the teacher. 
Isn't this what we want? We want to have people to follow in the thing that we are teaching. And so Jesus' point in bringing it up is that he wants his disciples to be fully trained in his ways. He wants the disciples that are there to follow him, to be fully like him, to be Christ-like as his disciples. They don't need a different teacher. They don't need anybody else. They should want to sit under his tutelage and seek to be like Jesus. And the same is true for us. We should seek to be fully trained as disciples of Jesus and be like our teacher who is Christ. You see, all Christians are disciples of Jesus. A disciple is not an extra category or a deeper level of a Christian. When you come to faith in Christ and you confess Jesus is Lord, you are his disciple. And so we are all to sit at his feet and to learn from him every day of our life. So where do we sit at Jesus' feet? Where do we learn the ways of Jesus so that we might be like him? It's from the word of God, right? The word of Christ. Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two say, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. The word of God comes to us through Jesus. Colossians 3.16 says, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ, the word of God found within our Bibles is to be the teaching that we hear from the, the voice of Jesus and by which we sit under and conform our lives to. And friends, we know that in this life we will never be fully trained, right? It's a, it's a goal that we seek to be mature in Jesus, that we strive for until we are glorified one day. And so we sit at Christ's feet. We open his word. We submissively listen to him. We come as a learner seeking to conform our lives to his and say, Lord, make me fully conformed. Make me fully trained in the ways of Jesus. Make sure there's no area in which, in which I am not trained. I want every aspect of my life to be conformed by Jesus. But we're not just coming to Jesus, I want to note, to learn about spiritual things and, and just about salvation, and then we go to the world to learn about everything else. Certainly the Bible doesn't have everything that all the knowledge that there is in the world, right? We don't learn trigonometry from the scriptures. But the word of God is the basis by which we learn everything else. We need to make sense of God's universe, which means we go to the word of God as a starting point to understand God's universe, right? We can't make sense of God's world, the one who created it all, if we don't go to the one who created it. Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And this means that in order to understand God's world rightly, we must know God. Now there is much unbelievers can know about our world, but listen to this, all the puzzle pieces don't fit together unless you look at the picture on the front of the box. Where do we get the picture on the front of the box for our world? It's from the Bible. That's where all the pieces fit together about who we are, about why we're here, about what this universe is and what's the goal and purpose of this world and our lives. It all fits together when we, when we start with the word of God and ends in praise to him. In other words, get this, we need to learn Christ in order to build a Christian worldview. A worldview, the lens by which we see the world we need to build a Christian worldview to look at all areas of life, not just the church 
areas, not just the salvation areas, not just the spiritual areas, but all of life through the lens of God's word. How do we think Christianly about every area of our life? We go there to the word of God because this is truth. This is total truth. This isn't just spiritual truth for a certain segment of our life. This is total truth for all of life. Christ is Lord over all. So this leads us to another point that Jesus is making, the point that I brought out, draw out here in this point. If we are to learn rightly, correctly, and truthfully, then we must choose our teachers wisely. Who we learn from is important. In other words, the content is not the only important consideration when learning a subject. The teacher, too, must be considered. Behind every teacher, in any classroom, anywhere, is a worldview. Everyone has a worldview that they operate off of, whether they realize it or not. They have beliefs about how the world came into existence. They have beliefs about what our purpose on earth is. And this worldview informs all that they teach. We cannot set aside our worldview. Now, the Bible is clear that at the fundamental level, there are only two worldviews, believing and unbelieving, Christian and non-Christian. Joshua made this clear in Joshua 24. Familiar verses to you. He says, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whom is this land you dwell. He says, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Are you serving false gods or are you serving the true God? You see, there is no middle ground between those two positions. There is no realm of neutrality where suddenly religion is set on the table and you can come to a, religion, a religionless space and there's knowledge presented without religion. Everyone is coming from a faith commitment. Everyone is saying something about, about the living God. Either they believe him and it's the basis for all that they do or they reject him and that's the basis for all that they do. There is no middle ground. The line between belief and unbelief is stark. There's no gray, only black and white. The scriptures are clear on that over and over again. There's no half Christians. There's no half believers. There's either belief or unbelief. And so every single person is either believing the Lord or not. And therefore, their lives, their worldview, is either one which rests on truth or one that rests on falsehood. And so I believe this verse, Luke chapter 6, verse 40, teaches us that education is discipleship. Education is discipleship. You see, what we call education today is often talked about as if there was some sort of neutral transfer of facts that simply there's this composite bit of facts that are simply delivered to students and uh, all the religion has been removed out of it. And so we just think education can happen uh, without taking a worldview into, a, into consideration. But discipling, but education is really discipling in a certain worldview. It's unavoidable. Now we can talk about this in all sorts of arenas, but I leave most pertinent and what's on my heart this morning is the arena of education of our children. And parents, I know there are many factors that go into why we make the, the educational choices that we do. But I would ask you to consider 
based upon what we see here in this text, a few principles. First is that every teacher of your children is a discipler of your children. They are discipling them in a particular worldview. And Jesus says that when a disciple is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. A teacher is not just giving children religion-free knowledge. Each teacher is speaking either from a foundation of submission to the Lord or a foundation of submission, a foundation of rebellion to the Lord. Again, as we said, there's no middle ground. They are training your children how to see the world. They are giving them lenses to make sense of life. And I don't need to tell you that our state-directed school system continues to make it clear what side of the divide that they're on. In one sense, this is helpful and clarifying. The ones writing the curriculum and deciding what courses are to be taught are in full-scale rebellion against the Lord. The origins of the universe and mankind is different than what the Word of God says, and therefore this enables our society to be unmoored from the Creator who made them. There's now no accountability because God didn't create us. They teach the self-worth and identity is rooted in self-actualization rather than being rooted in an image that God has given us, rooting it wrongly. This results in, as we know, distorted views of sexuality rather than what God has taught and what is for human flourishing and for the life and benefit of mankind. God's te the teaching on gender is against God's design as well. In fact, to say that Jesus is Lord and to call sin, sin, or to talk of eternity is forbidden. And therefore, this stance, again, is made very clear. Unfortunately, even Christians who teach in the system are unable to speak of the truth during teaching hours. It's this instruction that they give must be in accord with those who run the system. So the principle I want you to think about is that education is discipleship. Every disciple, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. What do you want your children to be like? What disciplers do you want your children to sit under? I ask you to prayerfully consider these principles as you make decisions about what is right for your family. And again, I emphasize there are many factors that go into that decision and we need to factor them all in. But I believe these principles are unavoidable from the scriptures. I'm not saying, don't get me wrong here, I'm not saying that all people who have their kids in the public school system are sinning. So please hear me on that. I'm not condemning those who teach in our public school system. I'm thankful for the work that they do and the light that they shine in those areas as well. My purpose in making these comments today is simply to draw your attention to a principle that we need to factor in and we need to consider. And I pray the Spirit enables you to prayerfully consider that as you evaluate what's best for your family. So to learn truthfully in all areas of life, we must choose our teachers wisely. That brings us to our third and last relational lesson that Jesus has for us today. The third and last relational lesson is this. To help others rightly, examine yourself honestly. To help others rightly, examine yourself honestly. And we see this in verses 41 and 42. This is a, Jesus here addresses a common problem of humanity. We can easily see the sin of others with clarity while we fail to see the sin in our own hearts and lives. 
Look at verse 41. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Verse 42, he asks another question. He says, How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? Jesus highlights here with an illustration, actually a humorous illustration, right? Someone who's all outraged and saying, Look at that speck. What? Look at that. That's glaring. Meanwhile, this person has a two by four sticking out of their head, which they're probably whacking people with as they're turning to and fro, right? They're causing more damage with their beam than the person with the speck. And it's a great hyperbole in order for us to understand what Jesus is talking about. From the observer's standpoint, from the third party, who's got the bigger problem? It's the person with the beam, right? Not the person with the speck. And so Jesus is trying to point out, going, listen, you've got a bigger problem than the person you're pointing out. And Jesus' comments here are directed to each of us individually. Notice the second person voice that he uses. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? How can you say to your brother, and then further down, you hypocrite? He's speaking to us directly. You, you, you. We're all forced to answer these questions ourselves. So we need to see, number one, that Jesus wants us to assume that we have a greater problem than the sins we see in others. And number two, we cannot help the other person until we deal with the sin in our own hearts. And folks, these principles are key for any relationship. These are key for your marriage to work, for your friendships to work, for your parenting to work. And yet we tend to do it all backwards, right? We do the very thing Jesus is calling out. Take marriage, for example. It's easy for a wife to, uh, again, to take an example, for a wife to become aware of her husband's shortcomings. They're glaring to her, and she is pretty sure that he is completely unaware of his problems, and so she feels a burning need to address the issues. She finds a perfect opportunity when he ha- she has his complete attention, which typically is when he ru- right when he walks in the door or when he's about to drift off to sleep. Then she lays out her case for all the problems that she sees. Now she's probably seen real and true sin issues. Not doubting that. But Jesus' instruction here should inform her approach and all of our approach. First, she should examine her own heart. Where is sin manifesting itself in this situation? It, it, she asks herself, is my anger righteous? Are my expectations biblical? Am I operating out of self-righteousness, thinking that I'm better than him? And these are just ideas of ways to explore the heart, to be able to stop, take a pause, and think about, are there any beams in my eye that I need to address before I address the speck in somebody else's? Now, it's the, it is classic that when we see sin in others, we are so focused, the only thing filling the view is the sin of this other person. And to think that we have a beam and they have a speck doesn't feel like the truth. Our, our feelings feel something different in that moment. But Jesus speaks in this language to help flip it for us. To help us be able to see we need to recognize the, the bigness of our own sin. That we need to deal with that first and foremost before we can even help somebody else. So after she's examined her own heart, she should then approach her husband, get this, with a desire to help him. Notice that the whole context of these verses is that we want to take the speck out of the other person's eye. We don't just want to point out the speck. We don't want to just point and laugh. 
We don't just want to judge, as he already talked about, right? Condemning and judging out of self-righteousness. We want to point it out and try to help them remove it. And so we examine our hearts, and then we move forward with a desire to help. Not just to vent frustrations, but to provide assistance by pointing out a possible blind spot. And this doesn't mean that this wife can change her husband, but she goes into the conversation praying God would use her towards those ends, that God would be at work in her husband's heart. Now, I don't believe that Jesus is saying that every time we, in actuality, in God's eyes, our sin is always greater than the other person's, but his illustration is meant to produce an emphasis in our minds individually. We should always think of our own sins as a log and the other person's sins as a speck, and this will cause us to live with others with true humility. If it's the other way around, we will downplay our sin and excuse it. We'll be judgmental towards the other person. We will only offer accusations instead of assistance. We will be adversarial instead of supportive. And ultimately, Jesus says to focus only on other person's sins is hypocritical. Right? That's what he says in the middle of verse 42. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. We want to take that speck out. We can't see clearly until we deal with our own sin. So we need to search our heart for sin before addressing uh, other sin. We need to see our sin as a bigger problem than the other person's sin, and we need to serve the other person by lovingly confronting them. There's a simple principle here that can change your marriage, that can change your parenting, that can change your friendships. We need to think and seek to apply these in the power of the Spirit to make sure that we are following the very principles Jesus is saying here, that we're not being hypocritical. Now, as we see this text, all of these rules, you may say, I've been falling short. I haven't been, I've been more judgmental. I've been critical of others. Friends, the gospel of Christ is here for you to recognize that in our shortcomings, in our failings, Jesus forgives. Maybe some of you, others of you, have been dodging confrontation. In fact, you use verses like this to point the finger and say, ah, take take a log out of your own eye to deflect attention off of you, to not really deal with your own sin. You need to come to grips with your sin as well and confess it to the Lord. And we know that we, Jesus, is the one that forgives us of our sin. He paid the price for it. So we need to come to Jesus, confess our sin, find forgiveness, and know that we can be merciful to other people, live with grace because of what he has done for us. We need to walk by the Spirit, be filled by Him, not walk in the flesh. We walk in the flesh, we defend ourselves. We walk in the flesh, we think we're self-righteous and we condemn other people. We walk in the Spirit and we're able to be humble and we're able to help others. We're able to clear out our sin, repent of our sin so that we can deal with it in other people. We must depend upon the Spirit to walk in obedience. I pray that the Spirit would help us this morning to examine our own lives and see where we need to change in light of these relational lessons that Jesus has given us. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this teaching. It convicts us. It hits us in so many ways. We need to deal with our sin and treat others the way that you want us to. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to be a community in a community of families who understand these principles, live according to them, that we might be merciful, gracious people with others that reflect your character. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.